Thank you for your kind words, Drew. It's a little uncomfortable sitting up here like this. Uh, but Drew failed to mention why I had to have knee surgery this week. You remember that last weekend we did our conflict resolution seminar here? It was a tough crowd. I don't even know what to do with this. This Well, it is a great pleasure and privilege for Laura and me to be back among you here at CHPC. We deeply appreciate your hospitality and your prayers for us, especially as we mourned my brother's death last month. We do feel loved and cared for by you. Today is Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday in the annual church calendar. We have the privilege to exalt Christ as King. I'm sure that during Advent, you're going to study one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Isaiah 9, 6, which prophesies that Christ will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Today, I want to focus on the claim of the Prince of Peace to his throne as Christ, the King of Peace and Christ the King of Peace in your church and in your home. You know that the Bible is full of commands for us to pursue peace with all men, as we've recited this morning already. And Jesus said that the world would know that we will be his disciples or good citizens of his kingdom of peace if we have love for one another. The essential way that we show our love for one another is to forgive each other as Christ forgave us and to confess our sins to one another. But how do we do this? Practically speaking, I believe we do this by imitating Christ, the King of Peace, as described in John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth, truth and grace. He gave grace to the woman caught in adultery by not stoning her, but he also gave her truth. He told her not to sin anymore. Jesus spoke truth to the woman at the well. He exposed her marital history and corrected her theology. Yet he was full of grace when revealing his identity to her. He was full of truth toward the Pharisees. He called them hypocrites, whitewashed walls, even sons of the devil. But he was full of grace to the Pharisee named Nicodemus, who came to him in humility. Now, I've noticed that we tend to think that grace and truth are incompatible or mutually exclusive. We lean toward one or the other. We neglect one or the other. For example, my natural personality leans toward truth. My spiritual giftings are discernment and exhortation. And maybe you're like me. If forced to choose between truth and grace, you would pick truth. You like black and white clarity. Or maybe you're like my dear wife, Laura. 
naturally and supernaturally gifted toward grace. You prefer to be compassionate, merciful, and nurturing in a grace-filled field of pink and purple petunias. When it comes to confessing and forgiving, if you're like me, you'll tend to choose either grace or truth. When I sin against someone else, I want full grace applied to me. When someone else sins against me, I want full truth applied to them. But if we're to follow Christ's example, we will be filled with both grace and truth as individuals and as a spiritual community. We will not see grace and truth as incompatible or mutually exclusive. Now, I've learned over many years that there is an intimate connection between grace and truth. And the connection is James 4, 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, being humble is simply telling the truth about who you are or who you are not, what you have done or what you have not done. If you're humble and truthful, God promises you a full measure of grace. Back in the day, when I was a sophomore at UC, I had been a believer for about two years. I worked weekend nights at a restaurant down on Calhoun Street. After closing the restaurant, I was allowed to take a sandwich and a soft drink back to my dorm room. But I would also take back with me a couple of sugar packets like this to save and use in hot drinks that I would make in my dorm room. Well, after a while, the Holy Spirit convicted me that taking those sugar packets was wrong. I hadn't asked the manager if I could take them. But in spite of the Holy Spirit's prompting, I tried to convince myself that I deserved these sugar packets. Hey, I worked harder than any of the other employees, and after all, they only cost a couple cents apiece. I tried to be full of grace toward myself, but my conscience finally convinced me that my self-justification was full of something else. To be truthful, I was a thief. So I made my plans to go to the manager and confess my sin. He was not much older than me, and he was certainly not a believer by any means. I imagined what his reactions might be. I thought he might blow it off and say I was weird for having such an overworked conscience, and he would recommend that I take a class in psychology. Or I imagined him laughing out loud. Are you crazy? This is Clifton, man. There's a lot worse things going outside than you taking a couple of packets of sugar. Get over it, I thought he might say. I even feared that the very act of confessing such a little thing was going to bring me humiliation. And I wondered what the manager would think to me after I did confess because I had been witnessing to him for Christ and giving my testimony of my changed life after believing in Jesus. Well, the day finally came and I nervously asked the manager if I could speak to him in private. In his tiny little office, I mumbled something like this. <clears throat> well, you know, this may sound stupid and it's... Uh, a little thing, but I've been taking a couple of sugar packets with me back to the dorm after closing every night, and 
I just want to confess that I know this is wrong. He didn't laugh. He didn't even smile. With a straight face, he looked right at me and said, John, I'm glad you've told me, and I'm glad you've told me now, before it's too late. Little things lead to big things. This unbeliever's words were full of truth. Without knowing it, he prophesied Luke 16.10 to me. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. And he who is dishonest in a very little will be dishonest in very much. But he was also full of grace. He didn't fire me. I can testify to you that every time in my life when I have been truthful about my own sin, Christ has been full of grace toward me. Now, sometimes this grace comes in different forms. Sometimes it's in forgiveness. And sometimes it's the courage to face the consequences of my sin. But he has always given me grace. You know that even the world wants truth and grace. My computer hard drive is crammed with pieces from secular media making fun of bogus apologies by the rich and famous. And I've collected articles by business consultants on how to apologize in the workplace. Their common theme is this amazing secret that they learned in their expensive graduate schools. And here it is. I'm not charging you for this. Be completely honest about what you've done wrong. And they give MBAs for this. In the church or in the world, if you want grace, simply confess and be truthful about your sin. Be specific and use Bible words if possible. If you've exaggerated or otherwise led a person to believe something that's not exactly right, just be truthful and admit that you've lied. If you're consistently late to meet with someone and you don't have a good reason, just be truthful and admit that you have just not been thoughtful of them. However you word it, though, if your confession is from the heart and truthful, they'll get the idea and they'll likely respond to you full of grace. One more point about being truthful in confession a Muslim group, a minority group where we live in Narnia, has a tradition of not beginning their worship times until the leader of that group is completely convinced that no one in that group has anything against anybody else in that worship group. They're very proud of this tradition, and they believe that they are more righteous and more spiritual than other religious groups who don't do this. Now, when I heard about this tradition... I suggested to them that just maybe their ancestors had gotten this idea from Matthew 5:23 and 24, which we recited a few minutes ago. You know that's where Jesus said, if when you're coming to worship, you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled, then come and continue your worship. Well, I was proud of myself for trumping their tradition by showing them that Jesus' teaching predated their tradition and therefore implying that they should come to biblical faith in Jesus. But then I realized something. 
I could not give them one example of a Christian church I know that obeys this simple command of Jesus. Well, how does being full of grace and truth apply then to forgiving each other? We've just talked about confessing to each other. Well, you know the story of the wicked or unforgiving servant in the last half of Matthew 18. I'll just summarize it for you. A king went around to his subjects trying to settle his accounts with them. One of them owed him the equivalent of a half a million dollars. But that servant begged the king, please forgive my debt, and the king did. Well, immediately that servant went out, and he found another servant of the king who owed him just one dollar equivalent. The Bible says he choked him and tried to make him pay. But that second servant begged for mercy, just like the first one did to the king. But that servant would not give him mercy, and he threw him in jail. Well, the other servants of the king heard about this. They went back to the king, told him about that wicked servant. The king went to that wicked servant and said, What in the world do you think you are? I forgave you half a million worth, and yet you started to choke this one who only owed you one. And then the king threw that wicked servant into jail. And the Bible describes that as a place of torture. And then Jesus said this at the end of the parable. This is what my heavenly Father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Jesus also said in Matthew 6.15, if you do not forgive your brother his sins, Your Heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. Here's the point of this parable in these verses. Christ, the King of Peace, is telling us that we must be full of grace to forgive others their one dollar debt to us. Because He has forgiven our half a million dollar debt to Him. Otherwise, we should not expect grace from God the Father. To be full of grace means that you forgive someone's debt toward you in your heart before God, even if you don't think that they deserve your forgiveness. You do this vertical dimension of forgiveness in your heart to God, even if those people do not repent to you. But if they do come and repent to you, then you grant them your personal forgiveness. We call this the horizontal dimension of forgiveness. But in addition to being graceful in our forgiveness, we need to be truthful also. Please never, ever deny the serious nature of the sin that people commit against you. Being truthful in forgiveness means that you will not say, oh, that's okay. Brothers and sisters, Sin put Jesus on the cross. Sin is never, ever okay. This means that you're going to state clearly the offense that people have done to you. If they've lied to you, simply forgive them for lying. If they have swindled you, forgive them for swindling. If they've dishonored you, forgive them for dishonoring you. But of course, as you speak these truths, speak them 
in love. Now, there are some people, and I confess that I have been among them, who withhold their forgiveness in their heart as if to punish the offender. Now, of course, you know the tragedy of that is that the offender is walking around free as a bird with no clue as to the evil intent we have in our heart for revenge. As a wise person has said, unforgiveness is the poison you drink hoping someone else will die. Let me say that again. Unforgiveness is the poison you drink hoping someone else will die. What kryptonite is to Superman, unforgiveness is to a Christian. Now imagine Superman intentionally strapping a hunk of emerald green kryptonite to his belt, then flying off to save the world, fully knowing that that kryptonite is going to kill him. Well, let me state this same principle positively. Forgiveness is releasing a prisoner and discovering that that prisoner was you. Forgiveness is releasing a prisoner and discovering that that prisoner was you. Speaking of releasing, some years ago I attended the funeral of a Muslim friend. I and the other mourners stood shoulder to shoulder in front of the coffin in the mosque square. The imam, that is the Muslim clergyman, led us in prayer. And we stretched our arms out in Muslim fashion with our palms up. And the imam gave us this instruction. If any of you here have any moral or material claims against the deceased, release them now. And we all said in unison, we release them. Then the imam a second time said the same thing. And we said, we release them. Then a third time, we release them. Now the one thing that every single Muslim I've ever talked to agrees on is this. They all say to me, John, the only sin that Allah will not forgive is that if we come to his presence with something that we call the servant's claim. That means this. If you die, John, without repenting of your sins to other people that you've sinned against, Allah will not let you into heaven. He'll forgive anything that you do to him directly, but he will not let you into his presence with any other servant's claim on you. Now, I've thought about this long and hard. Muslims believe that when they release their claims, they're actually doing it for the benefit of the deceased. But as I understand biblical forgiveness and the serious consequences of our not forgiving, I see a Muslim funeral in another light. Actually, releasing their claims is more beneficial for the servant who stays here on earth than for the deceased. Now, of course, you know that the biblical thing to do is to forgive or release your claims on someone before they die. I confess that this year I've had an extremely hard time practicing what I'm preaching to you here today. My fiercest personal spiritual battle is to be full of grace to forgive others. And this year I faced the greatest temptation I have ever faced 
in my entire life. A certain person launched a 10-month campaign to slander me and malign my ministry. I was forced to answer this person's false accusations. And this cost me literally hundreds and hundreds of hours of my time. And it cost that person nothing. Now I want to warn you. You can take my money. You can take the shirt off my back. But never, ever steal my time. It's my most precious resource. Now, all accusations against me have been proven false, but I want to confess that I've still struggled with being full of grace to forgive this person and to forgive all of those who listened to that person's slander against me. Well, I just confess to you that my time is my precious thing. What's yours? What do you struggle with to forgive people for when they take it from you or they violate it? Is it your time or your money or the shirt off your back or is it your honor or your respect? Well, my comfort has been this and I hope it's yours also. Even if no one else in the world understands the pain that you have when people sin against you or the suffering that you face or the difficulty you have in forgiving someone, the good news is that Christ, the King of Peace, does understand. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That means that Christ, the King of Peace, was tempted to not forgive, just like you and I are. Remember, he was spit on, he was abused, and he was betrayed, but he did not sin by not forgiving so when we approach his throne of grace he promises that we will there find grace to help us in our time of need to forgive one of my closest friends named Ibrahim is a Muslim who came to faith in Jesus one of his two grown sons who's not a believer himself says to his dad dad you're strange you're strange because you forgive people. Earlier this year, I shared this story of Ibrahim and his son with a handful of Asian Muslims who had come to faith in Jesus. In their country, it's illegal for a Muslim to change his religion. One man who had believed in Jesus for about a year said this to me, John, today for the first time, I've heard that to forgive is a fundamental requirement of faith in Jesus. And I know that if we in this little group begin to forgive each other, we will become strange like your friend Ibrahim. But can I ask one thing? Instead of calling ourselves strange, can we say that we're extraordinary? You know, these past weeks you've been led through a wonderful series on spiritual pathways. I believe 
that Christ, the King of Peace, has been preparing you on the pathway to become an extraordinary church. That is one that confesses to each other and forgives each other and one that is evermore full of grace and truth.